Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Bruce Tulgan. Bruce is a best-selling author, including multiple books on management, an advisor to business leaders all over the world, and a sought-after keynote speaker. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. I'm delighted to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for including me. So um, I I did some um, uh, research on uh, the work that you've done, and you've been doing this uh, under the umbrella of Rainmaker Thinking. You've been doing this for 26 years. And so you and I have been in business about the same period of time. I'm, I'm at 25. So what have you seen that's shifted over time in the realm of leadership? Yeah, first, let me just uh, compliment you on your use of the term umbrella and rainmaker thinking in the, in the same sentence. Um, and uh, because I, I think that, that was good. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, in, 19, in 1993, when I started doing the research that we've now done ever since, um, I was a young, unhappy lawyer working um, at number two Wall Street, and um, I, I was interested in the experience of my peers. Uh, I'm uh, 53 now, so I was uh, a young lawyer at the time, and I was investigating what at that point was um, uh, a stereotype that had emerged about Generation X, people my age, that we were disloyal, that we had short attention spans, that we didn't want to work as hard, that we demanded immediate gratification, that we wanted everything our own way. And uh, funny enough, you know, now I've written a book about the millennials called Not Everyone Gets a Trophy. And guess what? Uh, you know, there's a long range term of art we use to describe that phenomenon. Kids today. Right. <laughs> And uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, now we're interviewing Gen Zers, the people who come after the millennials. And, yeah, which uh, you described as having a real free agent mindset, but you can see the progression over the generations, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and I think the reason for that is, you know, and the reason I, uh, I, I'm tuning into the generational change over time is I think generational change is a mirror of accidents of history. Mm. And so, you know, over that time frame, what's happened? Globalization and technology have accelerated. Institutions have been more and more in a state of constant flux. Uh, individuals have realized more and more that they have to fend for themselves, that they can't rely on established institutions to be the anchors of their success and security. Right. The information tidal wave has grown and grown and grown. Uh, immediacy, the pace of change has accelerated. And um, so uh, uh, I think what, what you see, what, what I see um, is a continuation of a lot of big macro shifts. And then along the way, there are lots of micro shifts and the micro shifts are much more variable than the mm -hmm. long range trends. Sure. 
what do you see as the macro shifts over, over this time? Well, those are the macro shifts that I call them the four eyes, or I have to say, you know, Tom Peters, um, years yeah. ago when I first started doing this, he called them Bruce Tulgan's four eyes. So I kind of adopted <laughs> that because if it's good enough for Tom Peters, it's right. good enough for me. Um, yeah. But it's the four eyes, institutions, individuals, information, and immediacy. And it's mm -hmm. institutions in flux individuals realizing they have to fend for themselves, the mm -hmm. information tidal wave and the pace of change accelerating. Right. These macro changes have just accelerated. And, and by the way, that free agent mindset, you know, uh, in the late eighties and early nineties, it was downsizing, restructuring, re-engineering, Oh, the end of job security. And then it turns out that as the nineties, remember the nineties, the go, go nineties, peace and prosperity, low unemployment, magical right. business models. And the free agent mindset just kept getting stronger. And then in the early 2000s, after 9-11, when people were afraid for their job security again in a whole new way, the free agent mindset got stronger. And then as the economy strengthened, the free agent mindset got stronger. And then in 2008-9, when the economy crashed, the free agent mindset got stronger. So what's interesting is that... Um, Free agent mindset just keeps getting stronger and stronger in good times and in times of trouble. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly seen that progression too. And I know that, um, I mean, you've done work and written books about managing millennials, managing Gen X folks. And I mean, the, millennials have been kind of the, the target of a lot of uh, abuse around, you know, are they really that different or are they getting an undeserved bad reputation? I mean, you, you talked about these macro changes, but is, is the progression really that marked from one generation to the next in terms of how they operate within an organization and, and what their expectations are? I mean, every generation is an accident of its own history. So what makes for generational change is where the natural developmental life stages that everyone goes through. I mean, everyone goes through natural developmental life stages. Everyone starts out young and God willing gets old, right? Sure. And, yeah. You know, you have your early career and then your second stage career and then, and so on. And so everyone goes through those stages. Now it may be that just as 12 is the new 19, 30 is the new 20. <laughs> so, <Right>. you know, <laughs> that may be, uh, and, uh, we're looking into that, you know, uh, but, uh, but, but, but as people go through these natural developmental life stages, they intersect with accidents of history. And so, yeah, I do think generational change is a real thing. You know, it's not like, uh, people in previous generations, grew up learning how to think, learn, and communicate while attached to a handheld supercomputer. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not like in the, in the past we were all atomized in our own private nests, but interconnected with an infinite number of people all over the world, regardless of geography. I mean, these are historic changes. And, you know, look at the pandemic, right? So this is an accident of history that's transformational. Yeah. Well, we're all living through this, but if you're 60, it's very different than if you're 20. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I, I know you've talked about um, millennials, at least, being they have higher expectations. They think more short term in a more of a transactional way. So what does that mean for leading these folks? So if your organization has, you know, a lot of folks in that age range, how does that? And by the way, you know, the, the age ranges are so different no matter what you look at in the literature. So when, when you're saying millennials, what, are you, what age range are you talking at yeah, the moment? That's a really good point. Uh, demographers differ about the exact parameter of each generation. Mm -hmm. um, we end Generation X in 1977, uh, and we've had uh, I, as I a birth date as as the last year of yeah. birth for Generation X. So 1978 okay. is the first year of the millennials. Okay, and we split the millennials into two waves: first wave millennials born 1978 to 1989, and second mm -hmm. wave millennials born 1990 to 96. Mm. And then Generation Z, the post millennials, start mm. 1997. Um, I mean, look, the youngest people in the workplace today were born in. Are you ready for this? 2004. <laughs> right yeah. now that, that's with a note from their parents of course but still <laughs> right right and and uh, so look um you know yes uh, workers uh who are the youngest least experienced people coming in today they tend to think short-term and transactional what do you want from me what do you have to offer me now i say that in contrast to long-term and hierarchical pay your dues climb the ladder do as you're told wait for the system to take care of you right. um and 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 the youngest least experienced people to them that 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 sounds like nonsense. It sounds like a, like you're trying to sell them a bridge, right? Um, and, and it sounds like a con. Um, the funny thing is, though, that it's not limited to young people. People of all ages are thinking more and more short-term and transactional because in an uncertain environment, uh, it makes more sense to think short-term and transactional. Mm -hmm. and, and my advice to leaders is don't run away from that. Plug into it. And, you know, of course, for business leaders, the, the struggle is that continuity is very important. Uh, and so, uh, you, you, you know, some jobs, it takes a while to develop the experience and wisdom to be good at it. Uh, and also, once people have institutional memory and relationships, uh, continuity matters. Continuity has its own business value. Mm -hmm. So if you have people who are going day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, there's a tension uh, between that and the business need for continuity. Mm -hmm. uh, but I always tell business leaders, it's okay. You can turn uh, short-term transactional thinkers into long-term employees you just have to do it one day at a time, one short-term transaction after another. Yeah. I know you gave an example in a talk that you gave about, uh, you know, setting goals as, as very short-term and just focus on that and then move on to the next. Um, yeah, you you, you, you got to be granular. So, you know, yeah. what I always tell business leaders is, you know, in one breath, they say, oh, we can't keep young people anymore. Mm -hmm. And then in the next breath, they say, these young people, they have outrageous demands. <laughs> and, and I always say to business leaders, well, those outrageous demands, as you call them, they are telling you how to turn them into longer term employees. Mm. You know, I don't want to work on Thursdays. I want to bring my dog to work. It's an outrage. And then, you know, well, hey, see you later. It's an outrage. Well, no, they're telling you, if you let me not work on Thursdays, right. maybe I'll stay. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's something that you said in your most recent book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, that really struck me. And um, you talk in that book, you talk about people becoming really influential, becoming go-to people within an organization. And uh, one of the things you said was, no matter how creative and tenacious you may be, you still have to do things by the book and follow orders. And I was very struck by that because as an entrepreneurial person, I, it just made me shudder to read it. But how does that fly with, uh, you know, later like, like millennials and, and Gen X folks and Gen Z folks? Well, look, um, the biggest favor you can do for somebody who wants to be autonomous and creative is let them know first and foremost, what's not up to them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you start your own business, okay, all right, you're the boss. What's up to you? Everything. Well, okay, then I'm going to fly. Uh, nope, you're not going to fly <laughs> because <laughs> you're still subject to the laws of gravity. Right. Uh, well, I know. Okay, well, then I'm going to buy a, a laser. Well, a laser is a million dollars, so you're not going to do that either. Right. You know, so, so you're always limited. Um, and, uh, it's, 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 it's really no favor to anyone to pretend that they're operating without limits mm. guardrails and boundaries create a certain kind of liberty and freedom. Yeah. Now, the irony of boundaries is it tells you within what parameters you have freedom. Yeah. Yeah, I know you've talked quite a bit about the myth of empowerment and what, so how some people approach that as a leader um, is to leave people alone to manage themselves. And I think you quite rightly equate that with negligence because it doesn't give people parameters. It doesn't give people boundaries. And um, it's really, uh, you, you quoted, you made this great quote, un, an under-management epidemic so talk a little about that, about empowerment and, and setting boundaries and how the, two, how the two come together. Yeah, so false empowerment is, hey, figure it out. Do it however you think it should be done. Sink or swim, reinvent the wheel. Take a crack at it, even though it's not up to you. And, you know, the irony <laughs> of all that is it's actually sometimes it's not up to you. Mm -hmm. And it, even if it is up to you, some guidance, direction, support, and coaching would be really, really helpful. Sure. Um, so real empowerment is making it clear, first and foremost, what's up to people and what's not. What's required? What's allowed? Um, and then uh, broad performance standards. So um, broad performance standards are, you know, from now on, right? Or forevermore. And then expectations, which is today, tomorrow, this week, this month. So uh, uh, real empowerment is about setting people up for success. It's about defining goals, uh, helping people make plans, uh, helping people think through resource needs, uh, troubleshooting, problem solving, uh, tracking performance, uh, giving good course correcting feedback. You know, nobody needs a weak leader. Uh, and anybody who wants a weak leader is usually a low performer who's hiding. And uh, now look, if you're on your own, if you're a solo entrepreneur, uh, then, uh, you know, you got to do it all yourself. But um, if you have a boss 
that person has power in relation to your career and livelihood. Uh, that person has an obligation to provide you with support, guidance, and direction. And uh, my advice to every single person is every single day, the first person you have to manage is yourself. The second person you have to manage is your boss. And if you don't have any bosses, if you don't have a boss, guess what? I hope you have a customer or a client and you may or may not realize it, but right now that person is your boss because that's mm -hmm. the person paying the bills. Right. Um, and then the third person you should manage every day is anybody who reports to you, anybody who you know, has dinner with their family and talks about their boss and they're talking about you. And then you know, within, so, so then how much time do you have left, right? Whatever time you have left, that's for your sideways and diagonal colleagues. That's for collaboration uh, with cross-functional partners. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think the myth of empowerment comes from the idea that, oh, nobody should have to be in charge. Um, and I think that's mostly a fantasy. Mm. Well, it's one of the biggest challenges I think that entrepreneurs have when they're making a transition from working on their own or maybe with a business partner is how do you actually, how are you actually effectively managing people so that you can get things done and as well as maintain the, the vision of the impact that you want to have. So things like, uh, and entrepreneurs are not necessarily people who've had management training or experience or necessarily a good ex experience themselves so they can use that as a model for how they move forward so it's a it's a big challenge for people who start to move into that role of of leading other people and things that you said like spelling out expectations and um, having performance goals and um, and there's a couple of other things I know you covered in, in your book. It's okay to be the boss, like rewarding people quickly, correcting failure quickly. That's all. Um, those are all really great things to think about as a leader. Is there, is there anything that you think is unusual or, or um, a particular experience of entrepreneurs in, in what you've seen in that realm? Yeah. I mean, look, if you're an entrepreneur, there's a decent chance you've bristled against organizational structure. Uh, there's a decent chance that the reason you're an entrepreneur is you don't like having a boss. Right. Uh, right. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, you're probably an ideas guy. Right. And by the way, I use the term guy as a gender neutral term. Please forgive me. Um, and, uh, but you know, I'm an ideas guy and I've got energy and I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn things upside down and inside out. Okay. Um, but then where are you going to work? Because, you know, you probably have a lavatory and somebody's going to have to clean it. Guess what? At first, that's going to be you. Sure. You know, somebody's got to take out the trash. Oh, that'll be me. Who's yeah. going to make the coffee? That'll be me. <laughs> Who's going to sharpen the pencils? Me. Hmm. Right. Uh, I always tell young people, back in the old days, we had these sticks with, with graphite in them and we'd sharpen them and make squiggly lines with them. <laughs> you know, that's a pencil. Right? <laughs> um, but, you know, um, and, and, and so it's absolutely true. But look, this is true in organizations of all shapes and sizes, whether you're an entrepreneur or not. People often move into positions of supervisory responsibility because they're very good at something, mm -hmm. but it's not always because they're good at managing people. Yeah, for sure. And then, right. So then all of a sudden you have people and then pretty soon uh, you find yourself having to try to get work done through them. And, you know, 
the interesting thing is you ask people of, uh, in any organization, people who are entrepreneurs, you know, are likely to say this certainly after a little while, but you know, people are our number one asset. Yeah. And then I'll say to people, oh, well, so what's your approach to managing? Oh, I have my own style. <laughs> really? You have your own style. People are our number one asset, but I wing it when it comes to managing them. Well, why would you wing it? It'd be like, to me, that's like an accountant saying, you know, uh, my approach to the money, I don't like the general ledger system. So I just, I, I, I keep it all up here in my head, you know? Well, hmm, that's interesting, but you're not going to manage any money for me at least, right? So when it comes to leading, managing, and supervising, for some reason, because it's relationship driven, uh, because, uh, you know, because they're human beings, people think it's okay to have their own style, but there's evidence about what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so yeah, I think entrepreneurs have unique challenges when it comes to managing. Uh, but I think my solution for them uh, is the same as my solution for experienced leaders and organizations of all shapes and sizes, which is uh, you've got to take the evidence about what works and what doesn't work, what people need, what uh, results in the lowest error rates and the fewest delays and the greatest outcomes. Um, and and you've got to follow the evidence. Well, and, and I mean, there's a lot in the literature too about um, having a, a management style that is to some extent situational. And I mean, you, you have to be able to adjust to particular people and scenarios and to help them flourish. It's not going to, one style isn't going to work for everybody. Yeah. That's some of the most important evidence that there is, is exactly yeah. that, right? What is situational leadership? All that really comes from is um, everybody's different, right? People are different. And what works with one person may not work with another person. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but, but, but there are basics, right? So structured communication is better than unstructured communication. High substance communication is better than low substance communication. Sure. Clear expectations are critical for anyone. Um, uh, monitoring performance and measuring performance and giving people an objective third party uh, feedback is important for everyone. Nobody thinks that low performance should be rewarded at the same level as high performance. Um, so there, you know, there are, there are basics uh, that work whether you're managing somebody who's working behind the counter at a subway, you know, at a sandwich shop, mm -hmm. or whether you're managing an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. And, you know, I've worked for both organizations doing consulting and, um, you know, of course, they're very different situations. Um, and one person working behind the counter at Subway may be very different from another person working behind the counter at Subway. Sure. Yeah. So, the, you know, uh, the, the trick is how to take the fundamentals and apply them to each person, as you say, to each situation. Well, in this situation we're in now with the pandemic and so many people are working remotely, you've got a very diffuse, diffused um, workforce because a lot of people are working from home. So how does managing remotely looks, look different from uh, what you just laid out as some really good um, approaches to, to leadership? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the question everyone is scratching their head over right now because, you know, if you have people in the same place at the same time, place and time become a management crutch, 
right? Because, you know, oh, people are there. It becomes a stand-in for managing performance. You know, what time do people come in? What time do they leave? Um, do they seem like they're working, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is, even if somebody's working in the office or the cubicle or, you know, the chair next to you, place and time are not a very good measure of concrete actions and productivity and quality and outcomes, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I always call place and time the lazy manager's measure. You know, is there a body in a chair during certain hours? So what? Mm. You know, unless that person's job is actually to fill that chair, and, <laughs> you know, and, which is true in some cases, but, right. but, but rarely. And so one of the things I think that's really interesting about this remote management situation with so many people working remotely, of course, this trend was already underway, mm-hmm. it's accelerating hugely now, is I think it's, 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 it's forcing a lot of leaders, managers, and supervisors to put more structure and substance into their communication, to focus more on expectations, to focus more on concrete actions. You know, what exactly are you going to do today? How are you going to do it? What steps are you going to follow? What, what are the outcomes that will be measurable at the end of the day? So without the crutch of place and time, uh, I think uh, a lot of managers are discovering uh, good, structured, uh, expectation-based outcome-based management, which I think is phenomenal. Now, I think what's interesting, at least to me, is that I've seen a few waves, right? One wave is everyone was trying to adapt and people were insecure and afraid. Then the next wave was, oh, okay, we just got to put a lot of structure into our communication. A lot of people were over-communicating. And then I think what a lot of people realized, gee, place and time, maybe it doesn't matter that much where people work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think where we are now is people are starting to realize there is something missing, that human beings are wired to be together, that human beings are, you know, you know I mean, best case scenario, if you're always communicating by Zoom, let's say, you're still missing smell, taste, touch. Now you shouldn't be smelling, tasting, and touching your employees, but, um, <laughs> you know, but, but you're missing there's some. Defi- there's definitely an energetic component of being in the same room with somebody. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah right. So, so I joke about smell, taste, and touch, but you know, you're missing some visual data, some auditory data, but there's also this intangible and it's, you know, there's actually all this research on propinquity or what I call, you know, what's missing in the proximity gap. Mm. And yeah, you say energy and it sounds fuzzy, but it's actually not. There is a difference in uh, effort and creativity and the dynamics change when we're not together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, it, it makes me think of the question of, of as this kind of extends further, how do you, I, I think it's, it was challenging to begin with to build an intentional culture, one that attracts the right people, top talent, um, as you put it, and um, is, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on, on how do you do that under I quote unquote normal circumstances and how, how can you keep that going in under these conditions? Yeah, I think, you know, every organization has a culture, a lot of cultures emerge by default. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think as a leader, you want to design your culture. 
Ah. And uh, there are different ways to design a culture. I think one of the interesting things about place and time, one of the interesting things about proximity, being together, is, you know, a lot of leaders, I think, were anchoring their culture in space, in place, in mm. stuff. You know, uh, do you have couches or desks, right? right. You know, do you, what kind of snacks do you have? You mm. know, do you have carrots or candy? Um, and ping, ping pong table or, or not. Exactly. And, 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 and that was in some ways, I think, uh, also a lazy stand in for culture because culture should really be about mission, uh, and execution. And if culture is shared experience, shared tradition, uh, shared habits, if culture is shared language, shared tropes, um, then, uh, in a way, again, um, without the crutch of place and proximity and stuff, um, I think being intentional about creating culture means shining a bright light on your mission. Uh, it means shining a bright light on every person's role in relation to the mission. Uh, I think it is going to uh, flow more and more from how we organize our communication when we're synchronizing. So when we're, you know, t when we're, we're, we're communicating uh, with, with synchronization at the same time, uh, how we handle our asynchronous work and our asynchronous communication. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, it's really, um, it's up in the air right now, right? Th these questions are in flux. Uh, so many organizations, their culture that was based on place and time or when we get together or, you know, um, and now uh, I think th these questions are, are up in the air. My, my advice is bright focus on mission, bright focus on everybody's role in relation to mission, bright focus on communication protocols. Uh, and then I think the other piece of the puzzle is uh, what soft skills are the centerpiece of your culture? What, what soft skills do we really value here? You know, um, is, it, is it timeliness uh, or is it creativity? Or, or is it timeliness and creativity? Um, I learned this from working with the United States Armed Forces so much over the years that, um, of course, they're huge uh, place and stuff elements of their culture. But so much of their culture is the, the practices around communication and discipline and execution and, um, and, and some of the soft skills that they value so much. Well, that's probably the most um, thoughtful, considered um, approach towards culture that I've ever heard from anybody. So I, I really I really value what you said in, in breaking it down in that way, because I think culture is an elusive thing for most leaders. And to be able to look at it in that kind of structured way, I think is so helpful. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, golly, thank you for saying that, that, that uh, you just made my day. <laughs> well, one of the things, again, you talk about in your, your most recent book is really talking about real versus false influence. So when we're talking about people working together in an organization, um, tell us about what, what's the difference between real and false influence? Yeah, what led me to that is this puzzle of, you know, in today's environment where everyone's collaborating so much, where lines of authority are not so clear. 
what I began hearing from so many people is I don't have the authority to get stuff done. And I have to, I have to rely on people where I can't hold them accountable because they don't report to me or my boss. And I have all these people relying on me and, you know, sometimes they're not my boss. And so without authority, what do you do? And you know the answer, right? Without, well, if you don't have authority, you got to use influence. Well, that led me down uh, uh, um, a number of paths into our research and looking at what does that mean to different people? And so many people, what they mean by use influence, what they mean is get other people to do what they want or need without having the authority to enforce that. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do I get people to do what I need them to do if I can't require them to do it? And uh, so, so it's sort of the flip side of follow orders, right, is, well, what if, what if I'm not in charge? How do I get people to do stuff? And what I found was, you know, a whole range of techniques that people use to, and sometimes they're really um, proud of this, like, oh, well, you know, I'm the squeaky wheel. I'll badger people ad infinitum until they do what I want. Really? How do you think that makes them feel about you? Or somebody was like, right, right, right. Or if, oh, well, if, if, if somebody doesn't help me, then they know they can't get what they need from me when, when it's their turn. Oh, really? So, so you threaten them. You threaten (laughs) to withhold your support. How do, how do you think that makes them feel? Oh, well, if somebody doesn't do business with me, I make it really unpleasant for them. Oh, so you bully them, Hmm. right? Or, you know, well, I bake brownies. Oh, so you bribe them. Right. So all of these ways of trying to get what you need from people without authority, I call that false influence. And the reason is because actually they're poor stand-ins for authority. And even if you get what you want or need in the short term, it, it diminishes your uh, real influence with people. So real influence is the total absence of authority real influence is when other people want to do things for you. When Mm -hmm. other people want to make good use of your time, when other people want to want to work with you, they want you to want to work with them. When, when, when you're somebody, other people don't want to disappoint when, and that comes from how you conduct yourself and how you show up and how you treat other people. And it turns out that, you know, so one of the questions I ask uh, whenever I go in and do a talent assessment in an organization, I always ask people, hey, tell me about your go-to people. Who are the people you go to, you really rely on, your indispensables, right? And what I found over and over and over again was the people other people think highly of are the ones not who are always, you know, focused on getting their needs met, but they're focused on delivering on other people's needs. Mm. You know, what do I have to offer you? That, that what that real influence comes from, my influence lives in your head. Your influence lives in my head. Mm. It's how you feel about me. And, and it comes from being somebody who is focused on helping other people get their needs met. And um, so I call that real influence. Real influence is conducting yourself in a professional way. Real influence is respecting other people's needs. Real influence is what you build. It's the reputation you build from doing the right thing for the right reasons over time. 
Yeah, that's a great description. And um, I, I was struck by in that book that you wrote about how you, you put building rapport around the work above personal rapport, because some of that false influence can be, well, you be my pal and my pals will do this for me. And that's how, that's kind of the basis of relationships. And I think that's the way a lot of people think about work relationships is you befriend someone. And then I don't mean, I don't mean in a uh, intended negative way, but there's a, this, thing of, well, I'll make friends and therefore we'll all collaborate together and it'll go so much easier. But um, you're really putting the work as the primary focus in the work setting, which is kind of a duh moment. But um, I was very struck by that. I, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, again, it's because when it comes to relationships, you know, people kind of wing it. They do what comes naturally. They do what feels right. Habits feel right. And, you know, people know how to build personal rapport and they often, you know, so if you tell somebody, hey, relationships are the most important thing, that's the most important asset you can have in your career. People immediately think, oh, well, so that means I need to make friends. Mm -hmm. And my view is that it's natural to make friends at work, uh, that that happens. You're going to have friendships at work. But what, what our research shows is when the work goes wrong, it puts pressure on that friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when the work goes right, it protects the friendship. So, um, it, you know, no matter how much personal rapport you build, and by the way, a lot of rapport building in the workplace is what I call false rapport building, right? You're not actually best friends. But, but if you are best friends, Man, the number one thing that can go wrong in that friendship is if you let each other down at work. If the work goes wrong and, you know, you get blamed or they get blamed. Uh, so, the, so that's, again, that's the starting point there is the best way to protect the personal relationship is to make sure the work goes right. And a- actually, you know, if authenticity is, is important in relationships, at work, what you authentically have in common is this is what you both do to feed your family. So while we're at work, let's, let's focus on that. Let's make sure that goes right. And that, that's why, you know, even if you're best friends with somebody, if you have a a project with somebody afterwards, you got to take care of three things. The first thing is gratitude. The second thing is course correction and uh, troubleshooting feedback, what I call an after action review, which I borrow from the United States Armed Forces. Um, and third uh, is plan the next collaboration because planning in advance, so often what goes wrong in a collaboration is there wasn't enough planning. So mm-hmm. at the end of a collaboration, you know, be grateful uh, and um, talk about what could have gone better, and then look around the corner and try to plan the next time. Uh, that's, that's how you build up your, your working relationships. And then whether you have a personal connection or not, um, the work will keep getting better and better. Yeah, right. Oh, that's great. Well, Bruce, I always wrap up these interviews with uh, three questions about impact. Are you game to do that? Yes, ma'am. Uh, you fire away. I'll do my great. best. Okay, great. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? I know that 
I'm not always my best self. I'm not always at my best. I try, but I know, but, 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 but I know that I can keep practicing being the person I want to be. And when I try really hard to show up at my best, and when I try really hard to add value in every interaction, uh, I know at the very least I'm, I'm practicing being the kind of person I want to be. Mm, that's great. Well, the second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Listen to my wife. <laughs> I mean, that, that's actually true because uh, she's my closest friend and my smartest friend, and she asks the toughest questions. And she always has the most interesting answers. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, so, and I would say that, um, you know, who you choose for your intimates, uh, man, that's an important choice. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, the last question is, what's one insight or a piece of advice you'd share with another business owner who's asking themselves, how can I contribute more? How can I positively affect things? Well, every day, uh, manage yourself and then think, um, who am I going to focus on today? And, and it, it, what can I do for that person? Can I do a bunch of heavy lifting, a bunch of work very well, very fast all day long to help that person? Can I identify a problem that nobody else has identified? Can I solve a problem? Can I make something smarter, faster, and better? You know, um, so every day you want to take care of yourself, you know, get yourself right. And then who am I going to focus on serving today? Well, that's a great way to, to uh, end our conversation, Bruce. Uh, thank you so much for sharing what you have around the many ways that you've researched and, and worked with leaders and managers on um, how they can better bring an organization together for, their mission and what they're doing. So thank you so much for what you've talked about here today. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, Rainmakerthinking.com is our website. And you can find me at Bruce Tolgan on Twitter and you can find me on LinkedIn and, you know, but, but Rainmaker Thinking is where we live. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much, Bruce. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Oh, thanks for the work you're doing. And thank you so much for including me. What a pleasure to make your acquaintance. Oh, it's a pleasure for me too, Bruce. Thanks. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at workalchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page. Thank you.